Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. This is the moment now when we've gone through the preliminary stuff. We've gone through Jesus' birth, the lineage. We've gone through uh, him getting set up. We've gone through his temptations. And now it's time for the greatest teacher the world has ever known to actually start teaching. And in those days, when a rabbi wanted to teach, when he wanted people to pay attention, he sat down. Until he sat down, everybody just milled around, talked amongst themselves. But as soon as the rabbi, as soon as the teacher sat down, that was time to be quiet, time to listen. Here it comes. And this morning, we're going to look at the first time that the Bible records that Jesus sat down and taught. It was on a hillside, and as such then has become known through our teaching as the Sermon on the Mount, or as I call it, the Talk on the Rock. And we're going to see that the first thing that Jesus zeroes in on here, <clears throat> excuse me, are the principles, the attitudes, and the actions that we should follow if we want to experience life on earth and life in heaven in all its fullness, as, frankly, we were meant and created to do. And in a way, these eight beatitudes are a summary of what his talk on the rock is all going to be about. And we call them the Beatitudes simply because they begin each one with the word blessing. They're actually principles and directions for living. I've always liked to think of them as Beatitudes. Attitudes we're supposed to be. So we're going to take them on and see where they lead us to be for this week, for next week. Now, a little setup here at the outset. The word beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, which simply means blessing or blessed. Each of the eight beatitudes, as I've mentioned, starts with that word blessed, which leads to the next obvious question, which is, well, what exactly does blessed mean? <clears throat> and here's where it gets a little tricky. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because there are several meanings attached to this word, depending upon the context of where it's used. And they're not mutually exclusive. They overlap each other. So you will see that there is some carryover from one to another depending on your perspective. The first and highest use of the word blessed is when it refers to something set apart or consecrated for God. For instance, we use it when we refer to the communion elements as being blessed. They're being, they've been set apart by, by God for a purpose. We use this word when we say a blessing for our food, recognizing that God has set it apart for our use. The second use is when we use it as a blessing when we speak well of something or someone. We just did it in song. This is the sense when we say bless you to someone who has done us an act of kindness or when we offer our praises to God. For the third use of blessed, the most common word is defined simply a combination of the first two. And the one word that has been used most often from the English language is the word happy. If you're blessed, you are happy, but only if you define happy right. The popular idea of happiness is having the right circumstances. It's when and then kind of thinking. When I get out of school, then I'll be happy. Right, guys? When I get out of a job, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When we have kids, then we'll be happy. When the kids leave home, then we'll be... Well, you get the idea. The classic chapter on the search for happiness is Ecclesiastes 2. Solomon, in the very first verse, says, I decided to enjoy myself and, and find out what happiness is. 
And if you want to save yourself a lot of time in that exploration, you can just find out what Solomon found out by reading Ecclesiastes 2. Solomon walked down a lot of roads and they all led to three dead ends. Accumulating things, experiencing pleasures, and achieving success. And truth be told, they are often the very things we still spend our life trying to get. With these things, these pleasures, this success, we thought we would be happy. Someone asked Howard Hughes, who at the point, that point in time was the richest man in the world, they asked him, how much does it take then, Howard, to be happy, for a man to be happy? And you know what he said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. It's a worn cliche, but true. You can't buy happiness. Solomon said, I've tried it all, and I've concluded all of it. All of it is meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. The story is told of two old friends who bumped into one another on the street one day. One of them looked for me. No, forlorn, forlorn. Almost on the verge of tears, his friend asked, what has the world done to you, my old friend? The sad fellow looked back and said, let me tell you, three weeks ago an uncle died and left me $40,000. That's a lot of money, said the friend. Yes. But then, two weeks ago, a cousin I never even knew died and left me 85000 free and clear. Ah, sounds like you've been blessed, the friend began to say. You don't understand, you don't understand, the sad fellow interrupted. Last week, my great aunt passed away. I inherited a cool quarter of a million bucks. Now the friend's really confused. What a blessing, I don't understand. Why are you so glum? Because this week, nothing. The popular idea of happiness is having the right circumstances. But God's way to happiness is having the right attitude. God's definition of happiness is a spiritual joy and satisfaction that abides and remains regardless of our circumstances. Even in the midst of life's disappointments and hard times, Jesus teaches you can be deeply, spiritually, and profoundly happy. Probably the best way for me to describe blessed is to do it from God's perspective. For us to understand the word in the context of favored by God. Favored by God. And to understand here then that the, Jesus is referring to our ultimate well-being. To a state of spiritual joy because God's favor rests upon us when we do these and have these attitudes. Each of these beatitudes looks further down the road than just the immediate. Each points to the end destination. So having a little bit of clarity, whose approval will you seek this week? Will you seek man's approval or God's favor? Would you consider yourself a blessed person? Would you say you're favored by God? Let's see it through the eyes of Jesus. And one other thing I'll say at the outset as we dive into these eight Beatitudes is that there's a tendency to view each of them as standalone elements, standalone statements. Oh, aren't you blessed? You're poor in spirit. Oh, I'm really blessed. I'm pure in heart. You got your blessing. I got mine. That's not Jesus' intent here. It's kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. Even though we will look at each one so as to gain some understanding of the depth of Jesus' teaching here, Jesus intends them to be a package deal. All of these put together is what a disciple of mine looks like. Not one of the eight, all eight. True happiness abides when you have all these attitudes, not just one. The first milestone on the road to true happiness, Jesus says, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
What does he mean by the poor in spirit? He's not talking about low self-esteem here. He's not talking about putting yourself down all the time. The Bible says Jesus died for you. You have value. You have worth. You have significance. But that doesn't mean you're perfect. You're not. I'm not. So what does it mean then to be poor in spirit? Perhaps it's most easily defined by saying the opposite of it. The opposite of poor in spirit is rich in pride. Poor in spirit simply means you do not have an overinflated opinion of yourself and you recognize your complete and utter dependence upon God. The poor in spirit are those people who come to God to receive from him what they need for life. And if God doesn't fill their spirit, they will not be filled at all. The step toward real blessing is to realize that you are spiritually broke and that you really need God in your life. The cause you see, of most of our problems can be summarized in two words. Playing God. Whenever I try to play God, it causes all kinds of problems in my life and my relationships. I play God when I want to call my own shots, when I want to make my own rules, when I want to put myself at the center of the universe. This is not a new problem by any stretch. In fact, it's man's oldest problem. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and the devil tempts them, he says, if you'll eat this fruit... You'll be like God. You can be God too. And Adam and Eve ate it up. And ever since then, men and women have been playing God. Now, today we're a little bit more sophisticated. We don't run around calling ourselves God, at least most of us don't. But let me tell you something we do do. Every single day of our lives, we make choices and decisions that, that imply that we're smarter, that we know more than God. I know that God says this is the right way to handle my money or my life or my relationships, but in this particular case, I really, I think I know what's best. That's called playing God. This is one job in your life that you are guaranteed to fail at, playing God, because you're not big enough. The path to true happiness is to admit we need God's help. It should not be a surprise to us that Jesus' first teaching mirrors the first commandment. Have no other gods, including yourself, before me. Why don't we save, our, save ourselves a little bit of misery, even right now, and admit what we're going to admit inevitably anyway. We're not God, and we need God because our life is unmanageable without him. If that truly describes where you're at, may I say to you this morning, nice going. You're ready to be favored by God. You know what it is to be poor in spirit. You, know, you, can, know, you can know that we cannot play God or, or, or somehow earn God's favor. Nothing we can do will bring us any closer to God. It's all up to him. When Jesus spoke of being poor, it brought the idea forward of a cringing beggar or pauper to the minds of those sitting on that hillside. This is how we are to be before God. A beggar, pure and simple, begging for entrance into his paradise. Before we, can, before we can accept Jesus as Savior, we must first recognize that we fall short of God's standards of righteousness. We must first recognize our poverty. We must first accept the riches of God that are in store for us in heaven. To rephrase what we've learned, God's favor rests on those who realize they're spiritually helpless or you're blessed when there's less of you and more of God. Back to John the Baptist. If that's you, then blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Which brings us to Jesus' second statement in his rock talk. Blessed, 
favored by God are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The most obvious cause and case for mourning happens when we experience deep personal relationship loss. Grief. In my role in care ministry here, there are those times when I'm present when the full force of the pain of loss hits someone's life. And not only does my heart go out to them in those moments, but I wonder, I wonder what this loss will do to their hearts. Will it make their heart grow bigger or will it cause it to shrivel up? Will their grief turn them into disillusioned, bitter people? Or will they turn to God for comfort and healing and regain the joy of life and relationships? It's something most of us find ourselves woefully unprepared for. So maybe it's prudent that we take a look at the choices we face as we encounter loss and sorrow so that we might also be comforted. Paul tells us, grieve not as those who have no hope. He says the biblical approach to grieving is a hopeful one compared, obviously, to the world's. Let's compare society's approach to mourning with God's by tracing the story of a fictional little boy named Johnny. <clears throat> when five-year-old Johnny's best friend in the world, his dog, dies, Johnny's world is rocked. Johnny cries. His parents don't know what to do with Johnny's grief, so dad stammers a bit and says, don't cry, Johnny, we'll get you a new dog. In that one sentence, Johnny's dad is really offering the first two steps in society's grief recovery program. Bury your feelings. Come on, mop up, don't cry, pull it together, act normal, be brave, bury your feelings. We'll get you a new dog and replace the loss. Several years later, Johnny's bike gets stolen. Once again, dad responds, shake it off, buddy, we'll get you another one. Bury your feelings, replace the loss. Later, when Johnny falls in love with his high school sweetheart, the world has never looked brighter until she dumps him one day. Johnny's heart is broken. He's a wreck. But mom comes to the rescue this time and says with great sensitivity, there are other fish in the sea, Johnny. Bury the pain, replace the loss. Johnny's got steps one and two down pat now. He'll use them the rest of his life. Much later, John's grandfather dies, the one he fished with every summer. He found out through a note that was slipped to him during math class. And when he couldn't fight off the tears, the teacher sent him off to the school office where he could grieve alone. When he got home, he saw his mother weeping and he wanted to hug her and cry with her. But his dad said, don't bother her right now, John. She needs to be alone. And the third piece in the grieving puzzle was complete. Grieve alone. So he went off to his room and he cried alone in a deeper sense of loneliness than he'd ever known. Eventually, he buried those feelings and replaced them with busyness. But he kept thinking about his grandpa until finally he told his mom one day and she said, John, give it time. Time heals. Step four in John's unhealthy grief recovery program. When John gave it time and more time and more time, somehow he still felt trapped in his sadness. John does just a little relational math to himself, and he reasons, close relationships expose me to the possibility of deep pain. Therefore, the way to make sure that I never have this kind of anguish again is to keep everyone at a distance. The last stop, wall yourself off, never trust again. Don't get so close to people that their absence could hurt you deeply. Bury your feelings, replace your losses, grieve alone, let time heal, and never trust again. That should sound familiar to you. It's been society's approach for several thousand years. The vast majority of us have most of those pieces in place in our system right now. 
But are sadness and loss really being addressed here? Is there real comfort? Or might there be lots of people walking around right now with open wounds on the inside? Society's approach, bury your feelings. God's approach says exactly the opposite. He says, feel your feelings to the fullest extent that they well up within you. Don't stuff, don't bury, don't deny, don't discount, don't put on the false image of bravery. There is hope beyond grief. If you work it through, so grieve. One day, a close friend of Jesus named Lazarus dies. Jesus gets word of his death and travels to the town. The crowd is waiting, holding their breath, wondering what the Son of God is going to do when he stands beside the tomb. He wept. He wept. Those two words speak volumes about grief recovery. And I think people all over the world, all throughout history, will be well served by just watching Jesus weep. It might free them up to express their God-given emotions. It might give them permission to cry the language of the soul, the cleansing river of emotional release. And God's approach says, let that river flow. Jesus did. Society's step two is to replace the loss as soon as you can. Turn the page, move on. God's approach says, don't replace the loss, review the loss. Hang out in the sad place long enough to allow the full effect of the loss to settle into your soul. See, to recover from pain, you've got to face it. Stand in it. Process it before it will dissipate. The third step in society's approach to grieving is to grieve alone. And God's approach, again, is opposite. Grieve in community. The Bible has hundreds of texts that urge the brokenhearted to band together with family and friends in order to grieve in community. Step four, society says, time will heal. Jesus says, I'm leaving you with the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter. 50 years ago, people thought they could just bury toxic waste and it would go away. Time would take care of it. We have since learned that it doesn't just go away. It makes trouble. It leaks into the water table and contaminates and even kills. And buried grief does the same thing. It just doesn't go away. It leaks into our emotional system subconsciously and wreaks havoc there. It contaminates our perceptions of life and it taints every relationship. Time in and of itself does not heal a thing. God's approach says, feel your feelings, stand in your pain, review your loss, grieve in community, and then humbly ask me to heal your broken heart. His promise is that he will. And finally, society's approach says, once burned, twice smart. Once you've had your heart ripped out, wall up and never let it happen to you again. God's approach to grieving says, you're too fragile to have your treasure ripped out. You haven't lost your heart. You've lost what your heart treasured. It has to do with where we place our treasure, you see. What we ultimately give our heart to. You see, if we place our treasure, our heart in things that will perish someday, then so also will our hope and our heart. But if we give our heart to Christ, the Bible promises from cover to cover that the treasure, Jesus being at the center of your heart and life, is not vulnerable to any destructible force or power in this world. He said, be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You might lose your shelter. You might lose your fortune. You might have a loss for someone you love or your health. But you will never lose me. Never, never, never. I'll be the treasure at the center of your life forever. Death does not have the last word. I do. <clears throat> so two roads for those who mourn. 
society's approach and God's approach. You've got to make a choice. You have to make a choice which takes us to another cause for mourning. To discover this one, all you have to do is look at the state of our world, the immorality, the evil, the sin that resides all around us. And every time we see it, it should lead us to a place of mourning. Jesus is challenging us to go much deeper, to really have an intense sorrow, to actually feel pain over the way that sin and evil pervade our society and, yes, even us. The Bible tells us that Jesus wept twice. Only twice is it recorded that he wept in his ministry. We just looked at the first. The second is when he weeps over the sin and hardness of heart in Jerusalem. Sin is the great problem. And he tells us how important it is that we should recognize, recognize that and weep for it. It's at the very heart of why Jesus came to earth. Sin had taken over. Man was enslaved by it. And Jesus' mission was to free us from its tyranny. Wherever he went, he proclaimed that. But he didn't just talk about it. He did it. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. So do you mourn over your sin? Does it bring you to your knees in pain and sorrow? Is it possible that we have become complacent about our sin because we know about God's grace? So much so that our sin no longer bothers us, no longer registers as something to mourn. Let me put it another way. When was the last time you needed to be comforted because of your sin? When were you so distraught, so broken up, so wasted over your sinfulness that you found yourself weeping? It's only then that the promise contained in this beatitude has meaning for when you mourn your own sinfulness, when you have deep sorrow over what you've done, it brings repentance and you will be comforted by God. <clears throat> now we know sin and we mourn, but one day sin will be no more and we shall be like him. And on that day, we're told, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we'll know in that moment that favored by God, are those who mourn for their sin, for they have been comforted forever. <clears throat> the poor in spirit are blessed, not the proud. The comfort Jesus promises for those who mourn their losses, their sin, and the sin of others. At this point, however, Jesus makes the description of the favored or happy life even more challenging. For he goes now on to say, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If we're to be this attitude, we need to relearn what is meant by meekness because it does not mean what most people think it means. It does not mean weakness or indolence or cowardice. It is actually meant to company with terms that our society would not put it with. Words like high spirits, words like courage, words like strength. The first clue to the biblical meaning of meekness lies in the discovery that the word is translated from one of the great Greek words in ethics, praus, P-R-A-U-S. Praus was used in three ways each of which give us some measure of what Jesus was trying to communicate to us. The first meaning is internal. It's defined like this. A meek person is one who is angry on the right occasion with the right people and at the right moment and for the right length of time. We see that most certainly in the life of Jesus is at the right time he displayed controlled and righteous anger. You might ask, what exactly are those times? Jesus gave us some general guidelines. His teaching was that it's never right to be angry for any insult or any injury ever done to ourselves. Never to be resentful of this, but that it is often right to be angry at injuries done to other people. That's the internal, but there's also external part to add towards the complete picture of weakness. 
And I use the word picture intentionally because the Greek language in which this part of the Bible was originally recorded is very precise and very expressive. When the Greeks developed a word, not only did they give it a careful definition, but they almost always illustrated it with a picture so you could see the word in your mind. In this case, the illustration was of powerful wild animals that had been domesticated, tamed, if you will, still just as powerful, but now brought under control by their masters. Their definition of meekness was power under control. And they most often used the picture of a wild, powerful stallion that had now been trained and now completely under control. Water that's under control would be water, water that's under control would be water rushing through turbines generating electricity. Water out of control would be a flood destroying everything in its path. A fire out of control can devastate, destroy. But fire under control produces warmth, cooking, locomotion. Biblical meekness is power under God's control, anger under God's control, our emotions under God's control. We were brought up to think of meekness as the absence of strength. It has the unfortunate place in the English language of rhyming with weakness. It's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture of weakness is power under control. It's the power of your potential under God's control. Each one of us has an untapped resource, has untapped power and potential, and until we come fully under God's control, we'll never be able to fully bear fruit in our lives. This was the picture extended to the people who were meek. People who were extremely powerful, but held that under God's control. There is an English word that preserves this meaning just a little bit better for us now, and that's the word gentle. In fact, in most places where the Greek word praus is used in the New Testament, the word given to us in translation is gentleness. It is this meaning that gives rise to the term gentleman or gentlewoman. It's a soft and loving behavior, the opposite of brashness and rudeness. There are wonderful examples in the Bible of gentleness completely changing the outcome of an event. But there is also a third sense to complete the biblical definition of the word meek. Because throughout the Bible, it also refers to our attitude on the vertical as well as the horizontal. This is the highest and best use of the word. Meekness is used to indicate a subservient and trusting attitude before God. We sometimes use the word humility in this context. <clears throat> it is the characteristic that makes us bow low before God in order that we may stand high before others. It is also, however, the characteristic that makes us bold because we know that our lives have been touched by God, that we are held firmly in his grasp, never to be let go. And we live and serve now as God's messengers to those around us. We're to be disciples and to make disciples. Meekness allows us to walk boldly into the very throne room of God with our prayers, where we bow low before him as the great I am, the Lord God Almighty. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct, conduct with respect to God and to others. Truly meek people are the ones who are absolutely amazed that God and other people can think of them and treat them as well as they do. They're gentle, humble, sensitive, patient in all their dealings. The truly meek are those who understand and humbly live into their honored position as treasured children of the most high and holy God. We know this because Jesus gives us the beatitude as a quote from the 37th Psalm. And it comes at the end of a long list of commands that encourage a person to place their trust in God alone. 
The meek are those who trust in the Lord, who delight themselves in the Lord, who commit their way unto the Lord, who rest in the Lord, who refrain from anger, who turn away from wrath, who turn away from worry and envy. It's those people who are happy, those people who are favored by God according to Jesus and who will inherit the earth. The world would have us think that meek, meek people get nowhere because everybody ignores them or rise roughshod over them. After all, isn't it the tough and overbearing who seem to succeed in our world while the meek get passed by? But in God's economy, which is really the only one that matters, the condition on which we enter our spiritual inheritance in Christ is not might, it's not material success, not achievement, but meekness. This is the confidence you can have today. This is the confidence of those who truly follow Jesus. Such was the confidence of the faithful throughout the Bible. We often quote the Bible referring to David as a man after God's own heart and Solomon as the wisest person who ever lived other than Jesus. But do you know that the Bible also describes one other person besides Jesus as being the meekest in the land? Anybody know who that is? There are only two people called meek in the Bible. Jesus and not likely the name that first comes to your mind. It's Moses. It's recorded in the remarkable story of the rebellion against Moses led by his siblings, Miriam and Aaron. Long story short, Moses fled, had fled Egypt, gone to Midian, married Zephona, Zephora, but she had died by the time this story takes place, and Moses marries again, this time to a non-Hebrew. This was not forbidden at the time, but Miriam and Aaron are out of jealousy, kind of objecting, and they start a mutiny, if you will. The Lord hears this, calls Miriam and Aaron onto the temple carpet, and lays down the law. But here's the point of the story. How did Moses behave through this? Did he fight back? Did he defend himself? <laughs> not at all. Moses submitted himself to God. He could have powered up and used his position to put down his rebellion, but instead he exhibited power under God's control. And in so doing, he bowed low before God, meekness in action, and he was vindicated. Meekness will take off its shoes before the burning bush. Meekness will trust God to do the judging. Meekness will pray for those who persecute it. Yet the meekest person will also obey God by walking up to the mightiest ruler of the day and demanding, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. The same principle operates today. The godless may boast and throw their weight around, yet real possession of the things that really matter for all eternity eludes their grasp. The meek, on the other hand, because they know what it is to live with Christ even now, although they appear to be losing ground, are actually going to be the ones in the end to enjoy and possess the earth with Christ. As we will see time and time again as we study Jesus' teaching, the way of Christ is very different from the way of the world. Jesus can do what we think is impossible. He can teach meekness. He can teach gentleness. He can teach power under control as we submit to his leadership in our lives. It will emerge as fruit from the Holy Spirit within us. And we will be a part of the new kingdom that he's coming to create because favored by God are the meek. For the kingdom of God here on earth will be ours to share with him forever. It turns out, you see, that the meek aren't weak at all. And now we come to the fourth attitude we need to be. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Literally translated into English, the original Greek word for righteousness means straight. 
We come close to this when we describe someone as being a straight shooter. They're a straight person. It embodies the whole idea of integrity, moral uprightness, innocence, sincerity, rightness, and being just, being just all in one. In fact, the word just is used interchangeably with righteous throughout the Bible. So in a biblical context, when we think of being righteous ourselves, it means to do everything right and being right before a holy God. Being just, being so filled with God that we unerringly do God's will. Imagine what life would look like if we were righteous. What would it be like to live in a righteous nation or a righteous world? No corruption, no payoffs, no crime, no violence, no locks on doors, no abuse, people living rightly. What would it be like to live in a righteous family? What would it be like to live as part of a righteous church? The pastor always ends on time. No one parks in the wrong spots. Everyone insists on the other car leaving first. Righteousness is such a foreign concept to us that we can barely relate to the possibility of its existing. You, yet even on a superficial level, we, we have been created to be exhilarated when we come across righteous things. I'm a terrible golfer. The first time I took Zach out to show him how to golf, he beat me. In fact, halfway through the round, he looked up at me and he said, Dad, I thought you knew how to play golf. Here's how it went. We get to the tee, he lines up right, he grips the club right, he hits the ball right, it stays on the right fairway, I line up, wrong, hold the club, wrong, hit the ball, wrong, it goes right, yeah, way right into the wrong fairway. And by the end of a couple of holes, I'm completely frustrated, defeated, and in despair, not enjoying this one bit. But who is? Zach is having a blast because everything's going rightly, right? He's enjoying it. We've been created to enjoy rightness. But of course, while we may have a huge appreciation for things done the right way and living the right way, it's another thing to actually pull it off. The temptation is to think, we can't pull this off, therefore, God must grade on the curve. No one is perfect, so righteousness as it pertains to us, it's got to be relative, right? God has to grade on the curve on this one. Well, that's the conclusion that the religious leaders of Jesus' day came to, the Pharisees and the scribes. They thought of themselves as setting the standard, therefore, for righteousness. We can't attain God's righteousness, but we can set up a standard that we can achieve here on earth. They felt that they, compared with all others, were righteous. Jesus shocked them when he said, just a few moments later, for I say unto you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. It was clear to Jesus' listeners that if the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't produce enough righteousness on their own, no one could. No one was righteous enough to get into heaven. What a shock to the self-righteous to, to understand that what they thought were box office seats guaranteed to them in, king, in the kingdom were not there. If Jesus shocked his audience then, he took it to a whole new level when he described to them who would be truly blessed, favored by God in the kingdom. Those who everyone else thought were unworthy of the kingdom. Those who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus was teaching that true righteousness is not based upon external appearances. He said to them, you are those who justify yourself in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So what does it really mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What is it going to take for that hunger and thirst to take hold of us and our families and our church? The first thing is it's going to take 
is that we're going to need to recognize our real hunger. When famine came to Rome in 436 BC, thousands of people actually threw themselves into the Tiber River to end their lives rather than face the agony of, of uh, starvation. Terrible famines struck Europe in the 9th, 11th, 12th centuries. In the 19th century alone, famines hit Russia, China, India, and Ireland. Thousands faced misery and death. Over the last 50 years, it seems like there's been a perpetual famine in Africa, doesn't it? In the 90s, some 3.5 million people are estimated to have died in a famine in North Korea. 3.5 million. Yet that pales in relation to the 30 to 45 million people estimated to have died in 1960 in a famine in China. We may not know real hunger and thirst here where we live, but it was not that way for those in attendance hearing Jesus that day. They knew hunger often, and they identified immediately with Jesus' words. They began each day with no food on hand and went hungry if none was found. Moreover, the sun, you'll get God's participation with you in, in the picture here. The sun was scorching, and the wind and the storms were blistering. You get that right now, right? Hunger and thirst were constant companions. Hunger did not mean the occasional growl when it was lunchtime, but the true hunger of starvation, literally dying for a sip of water. To these people, Jesus in essence asked, do you want righteousness as badly as you want food when you're starving? As badly as you want water in a desert? You must want it that desperately in order to be filled. It is only then that you will turn to me and away from your own attempts to earn righteousness for yourselves. Secondly, stop eating spiritual junk food. For about 18 centuries after Jesus, after Jesus, society in the Western world was fairly clear on what the standards for morality and virtue were. People basically, <clears throat> excuse me, when they're asking what was right and what was wrong, <clears throat> they looked up. They looked to God. They knew God is a righteous God with transcendent standards that ought to rule and reign. <clears throat> excuse me. Now, it doesn't mean people obeyed them perfectly, but people knew there were righteous laws that God had laid down and that they better be followed for the good of themselves and society. Then about the middle of the 18th century, it all started to change. Spiritual junk food came along. I think it's good, therefore it is good, people said. It feels good, therefore it is good, people said. I say it's good, therefore it is good, people said, and everyone ate it up. They're all based on the premise that we should look to ourselves, our mind, our heart, our will for the answers to discover what is truly right. Can I just say, looking at any one of us for a moment here and the society and the world around us, if this is the best we've got, we're in deep doo-doo. And yes, you heard that here. We're in deep, deep, deep doo-doo. And if a real righteous hunger and thirst is going to occur in our society, in our church and our family, the first step is for us to say, we can't look inside. There's nothing inside of us. There's nothing solid there. It's sand. We need to look up for our sense of what is right and wrong, what is righteous and unrighteous. We're looking up to Jesus for our satisfaction. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Whoever drinks water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become in him a spring of living water. Jesus is saying, you need me to survive spiritually. I am your spiritual bread and water. 
When you're thirsty, it doesn't matter what it costs, does it? You got to have it. Whatever it costs, just get me the water. That's what it means to be thirsty for God. I'm desperate to have him in my life. I want to know him more. <clears throat> Did you catch the action words here? Come, believe, drink. The point is that appetites are not filled until you do something about it. You can be starving, <clears throat> but you'll stay hungry until you actually do something. Take some action, get some food, put it in your mouth, swallow. Jesus is saying here, you've got to take action. You need to do three things. Come, believe, drink. That's how you find satisfaction in life. First, you come to me, come to Christ. Second, you believe in me, you believe in Jesus. Third, you eat and drink all of them in. Your need is met in knowing and loving God, being known and loved by God, enjoying a relationship with him and finding the purpose for which you were put on this earth is fulfilling. It's real happiness. It's satisfaction. So how's your spiritual appetite today? Do you hunger for the things of God? Do you really want to know him or is God just a convenience for you? Are you hungry? Do you have to have God in all of your life? Do you thirst for all he has to offer? The fact is we don't know God in his fullest when we've chosen not to. The Bible says pursue righteousness. Have you ever noticed that? It says pursue righteousness. It doesn't say lay around and wait for righteousness to fall upon you. It says pursue it. The point is that point is this, that unless each and every day we commit ourselves to the practices and relationships that contribute to the attainment of righteousness, we're drifting into unrighteousness. Why don't we make this kind of pact that from here to the end, we want to be more righteous? Why don't we do life right? Why don't we do our marriages right? Why don't we do our job rightly? Why don't we raise our kids rightly? Why don't we relate to each other and build this church rightly? Why don't we commit ourselves to hungering and thirsting and longing to grow in righteousness? I think it will be exhilarating. I think it will bring a smile to the face of God. Because blessed, favored by God, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I know it's way too hot to spend too much time here doing reflection, but I want you just to spend a moment pondering these questions, talk about them on the way home, look in your notes that you got, the, the questions are there. Please think about these things. Do you consider yourself among the blessed? Do you? I mean, really? Why? Why not? When was the last time you needed to be comforted because of the anguish, the sorrow, the mourning you felt over your sin? Has anyone ever described you as meek? Why do you think that is? And are you living rightly? Are you pursuing righteousness? Are you encouraging others to do the same? It's never, never too late to start. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge right at the outset that even on the external, we, we are amongst your people most blessed. Each day we're showered by your heavenly provision for our lives. But today we especially thank you for the internal blessing of having you in our lives. Help us, Father, to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought and to never lose sight of how much we need you. 
Thanks for the comforting power of the Holy Spirit when we mourn. And thanks most of all for making it possible for Christ to be the secure center of our souls. Thanks for the promise of heaven, where someday there will be no more sorrow and no more pain and no more mourning. We're looking forward, Father, to that day. And I pray that we would be known around here and throughout the area as meek people, people under your guidance and control. We acknowledge once again that we are lost without you. We trust in you, Lord, delight in your presence with us, and we commit our way to you. Help us refrain from anger, turn away from wrath and worry and envy, and be truly happy and satisfied on the inside. Truth be told, we've tried other things, possessions and pleasures and prestige, and discovered, like Solomon, that they all are empty. They all have blown away in the wind. May it be the cry of our heart to be filled only by you, we hunger and thirst for you. We want to eat and drink of you and know you in all your fullness. Keep us from spiritual junk food, <clears throat> swallowing what the popular culture around us says we should eat. Father, keep us, keep us and keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus that we might inherit the kingdom of heaven and earth. Be comforted that we might be filled as we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. That's our heart and our prayer before you. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.